0: Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 97. Psalm 97. Hear the inspired and therefore inerrant word of God. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship Him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. You who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the lives of His saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to His holy name. Amen. This evening we come to Psalm 97, which is not what we just sung. That was from Psalm 97. 72. But it's part of a theme that runs through the, through, the, through the Psalms and all the scriptures that indeed God does reign not just over Israel, not just over Zion, but over all the earth. And so the title to our sermon tonight, Where? Where is Jesus? Particularly, where is Jesus in this Psalm? But as we come to this topic, you know, the, the idea of of Jesus reigning where e'er the sun doth his successive journeys run, that, that reminds us perhaps of something if we have an interest in history. It was once said, the sun never sets on the British Empire. Now, I, I think that has to be said with a certain accent that I fall down on and and that boast of Victorian England certainly at one time was true. Think about it. There's England and Scotland and Wales. and Ar- I mean, what more is there? Well, Gibraltar and, and sometimes Palestine, Egypt, Iraq, India, Hong Kong, the Falklands, the British Virgin Islands, but not the American Virgin Islands. Now, our purpose tonight is not to repeat or rehearse the history of of Western imperialism. But rather, our purpose tonight is to look at Psalm 97, which speaks in shadow form of the sun never setting on Jesus' reign. Psalm 97, is, from beginning to end, is all about Jesus, even though it never speaks his name. You will not find his name in the text anywhere in Psalm 97. The Old Testament is like that. Shadow, sometimes elusive, difficult to understand, tantalizing, a little scary, pointing outside of itself, beyond itself to substance later to come. The Old Testament is mystery. It wets our appetite. It leaves us hungry wanting the full light of revelation to come in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Psalm 97 is also very interesting ground for us to sharpen our understanding of how to interpret the Old Testament. I'm going to do something a little experimental in the pulpit tonight, and I hope this works well. If not, in the congregational meeting, you can just vote me out. Even evangelical scholars stumble when confronting this psalm due to modern critical pressures that come upon them. So let's look together at the psalm and learn how to properly see Jesus in the Old Testament, or at least make a start in that endeavor. Look at Psalm 97. It's a clear, simple outline. Uh, The first six verses describe the distant shores Rejoicing in God, in Yahweh, in the God of Israel, in the God of all the earth. And then there's a pivot point in verse 7. A call to worship for a most surprising congregation. And then finally, there is this rejoicing. This rejoicing of Zion and the daughters of Judah and, and the people of God rejoicing over God's Worldwide Reign. Let's look at those three sections. The psalm begins, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlines be glad. Now we read that and we think, well, yes, uh, yes, there's the earth and there are many coastlines. And you know, we've got some nice coastlines. We've got the East Coast and we've got the West Coast and we've got the best of all, the Gulf Coast right here. Near Houston, we, we are used to coastlines and, and you know islands. We've been to Galveston. We know what an island is and we give thanks to God for, for the seashore and for the beach and the sand between our toes. But that's not all the psalmist is singing of in this place. The Lord reigns, he says. He's speaking of the of God, of the triune God, of the true God of Israel. God reigns, and all of the earth is to respond to his reign in rejoicing. So, not only is Jerusalem to recognize that God reigns and to respond with rejoicing and praise, that's to be true of Judea and of Samaria and of the uttermost parts of the earth. The sons of Egypt to to rejoice, Uh, the children of Babylon are to rejoice. Uh, those that are far away on Crete or or in Greece or in Rome or in Europe, wherever they might be, they are to rejoice over God who is the sovereign one who reigns not just over the Holy Land, but over their land and all the earth. Now this is something that we as a congregation have a little bit of an advantage and foothold to understand. Uh, you see... Um, we're not in some little, small, narrow, uh, ethnic, national uh, church life. We, we have in the congregation about 20 or 25 different nationalities, people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. The, the number of, uh, of uh, languages that can be mustered in this room when someone as a guest walks in from a faraway place, we can usually speak to them in one language or another. And so our hearts rejoice over God being sovereign and reigning over all the earth. But think about it. When the children of Israel, surrounded by their enemies, threatened on every hand, sang this psalm to God for the first time. The Lord reigns. Yes, they would hope. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. And it would be a line and a song that is almost too good to hope for, almost impossible for their hearts to believe. Let the coastlines be glad. Not sending their enemy ships, not impeding our trade, not starving our families and crushing our coastal cities by invasion. Let them be glad in God. Let them be brothers and sisters of the Lord and servants with Him, with us of the Most High God. The awesomeness of the Lord is also communicated in the psalm. Clouds and thick darkness are around Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes before Him. It burns up His adversaries all around. And so it's a spectacle of which the psalmist sings. The power and might of God are communicated by the clouds and thick darkness. His right to judge by His righteousness. His power to judge also robed in justice. They are part of the foundation of His throne. That God reigns over all the earth is not some recent triumph that He has achieved. All of the earth has always been under the sovereign hand of God even though we might not always see or feel that to be true. And then the the thunderstorm show begins. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. I can't help when I read that, but think of Little Dog. You know, whenever there's a lightning storm that comes and the house shakes and the thunder claps, Little Dog runs... Uh, to jump in someone's lap and hide under a bed or under the covers or some place that would be comforting. I, I must tell you, if we, have, if we have thunderstorms in the middle of the night, I am worthless for the first couple of hours the next day because all of life wakes up and Little Dog has to be cared for and it takes at least two cups of coffee to get me going the next day. The mountains, we're told in verse 5, melt. They're like wax. These solid rock, granite, giant mountains they just waste away and bow down before the power of Almighty God just like all the strong nations of the earth melt in front of Him and respond to Him with yea and amen because of His triumphs. The heavens proclaim His righteousness and all the people see His glory. Not just Jews, but also Gentiles. People from every nation. They will see and they will know that He is God. And they will be devoted to His praise and to His service. And then there's a turn. There's the strangest call to worship in all the Bible. Now the Bible has lots of calls to worship. The Psalms is a a wonderful treasure trove of Of verses that are used at the beginning of our worship services to call the people of God to gather together to sing his praise. But listen to this all worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. You gods. You idols, you worthless hunks of bronze and stone and wood, you little godlings, as we called them in a previous week, you little godlings come and you bow down and you worship the Lord because you are not the God even over your domain. You're not the God of the trees or of the sky or of the hill. You're not the God of the lake or of the sea or the fish. You're not the God in charge of increase of our crops and fertility of our people. No, you are nothing before God. You, you that the foreign nations worship, you come and you worship God. For He alone is the Lord. The language here is very interesting in this pivotal verse. The Hebrew, if you will indulge me for a moment, is Elohim. It's a word which is used in the scriptures repeatedly for God. But we know that can't be the proper translation at this place. It would make no sense to say, Worship God, God. That's a little odd. Elohim is the Semitic root name El, which means power. And it's a plurality of power, an abundance of power. Power upon power upon power, all of the concepts and boasts of power and energy all added together, that sum total even just barely approximates who He is. But that's not the way to interpret this verse. It does not mean God worship God. And so maybe, perhaps, it should be translated another way. Sometimes... This plurality of power is envisioned not as God in its sum totalness pointing to the one true almighty God, but rather it's seen as a great host of power, a great abundance of power, lots of different powerful beings who all have agency and right to rule and to and to watch over certain realms. So, for example, angels. Sometimes the term here, Elohim, occasionally is used in the Bible to point and refer to angels. Angels serve the Lord. Angels have real power given to them. Uh, They can can raise up and cast down nations. They fight and struggle with demons. They, They carry out the purpose and will of their heavenly Father. They are our brothers in the faith. But you know, in this context, it's clear that this is not angels that are called to worship God. Hebrew parallelism helps us. We see all the worshipers of images are put to shame who make boast in their worthless idols. And then the parallel concept is, worship him, all you Elohim. It's clearly not the angels that are in parallel with idols. They are not idols. They are not the worshipers or servants of idols. And so we're left with the startling fact that verse 7 is a way of God calling all the little godlings from all the different nations who have all their wee little pagan power over their wee little pagan areas in the minds of their people, that all of them should come to God. Think of all the animals coming to the ark of Noah. They come from all over the world and they make their journey. They come to Zion and all of the little idols bow down and worship God. It's an amazing scene. But it communicates that the nations indeed are reigned over by the Lord and that he will subdue them and that he will bring them forth from them firstfruits to worship and serve him alone they will be his servant trophies in glory only to God and then the focus shifts profoundly to Jerusalem to the mount on which God is worshipped, on which the people of God have gathered according to His command. In contrast with the worshipping idols, we hear that Zion hears about this and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because God's judgments, they are true. God is powerful and judges all the earth. You, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. And so these idols, as they're coming, as they're called to worship God, we need not fear them. Their nations are no longer hostile. They have been made subdued and subservient to Yahweh Himself. And so the people of God, not able to believe their eyes, not able to believe their ears, not able to comprehend, their hearts rejoice and they sing praise to God as the missionary endeavor of the church is brought to its apex and fullest manifestation. And then the psalmist addresses you. He addresses your heart. He addresses your walk with God as surely as he did the Old Testament saints. He says in verse 10, you who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. He speaks to you about your sanctification, about your need to love the Lord and to rejoice in His great missional endeavor, and for you to hate evil as you love God, and He will surely bless you and prosper your soul. Verse 11 excites every physicist among us. Light is sown for the righteous. And joy for the upright in heart. Here in verse 11 of Psalm 97 is a carte blanche permission, get out of jail free card for mixing metaphors. Light. Symbolizing here wisdom, knowledge, put to good and blessed use, is said to be sown like seed for the blessing and benefit and harvest of the righteous. Joy. For the upright in heart. And then there's the final period at the end of the song. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous. Give thanks to His holy name. Not the names of the godlings. Don't you remember a one of them. Don't bow down and serve. You worship the Lord. Don't worry about the nations. God is reigning. He will take care of them. In the end, there will be great rejoicing as God triumphs. And in Him, you do. As well. This psalm is all about triumph over idolatry and God's reign over all the earth. The New Testament is said to use this psalm, particularly its pivotal verse, verse 7 about, about let worship Him, all you gods. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. As we seek to understand how this psalm is properly interpreted, the New Testament interpreting uh, the Old in the light of the Gospel, we encounter in chapter 1 the fact that Jesus is the definitive revelation of the Father. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, And then he goes on to speak of his Son. The radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He makes purification for sins. He sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then in verse 5, the psalmist immediately changes his focus and says, he asks rhetorically, now to which of the angels... Has God spoken in this way? To which of the angels has he ever said, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be a father to him. And he shall be a son to me. These are Old Testament citations about Jesus Jesus is greater and higher than the angels. And, and the people in, in the New Testament times were very superstitious about angels. And so the author of the epistle to the Hebrews is calling them to lift their eyes up off of their world... And, ...and off of even angelic power and its influence in their well their world. And to lift it all the way to heaven and to see Jesus who is greater than even the angels. This is an argument for the deity of Jesus... That He is God in the flesh. And then He adds in verse 6. And again when He brings the firstborn into the world, Jesus Christ our Lord, He says, Let all God's angels worship Him. Let all God's angels worship Him. Perhaps citing Psalm 97 In verse 7. But boy, that's something of a problem, isn't it? Because the Hebrew text says Elohim and it it doesn't mean God and and it doesn't mean angels. It's clearly talking about the godlings, the little idols, these wee little things that are worshipped and made by people that they must worship God. The whole of the psalm settles that matter. What is the author of the epistle to the Hebrews doing? And you know when you read your Bible and you run up on a verse that you don't understand or or that's a little frustrating or or a little confusing or or seems to cite the Old Testament and you quite don't understand how it's using it, this can be a great crisis of faith. Pastors get phone calls in the middle of the night over this. Now let me tell you, you can call your pastors anytime you want. 24-7 we're here. Always start with a senior pastor and then call down the aisle. (laughs) You have a Bible reading that's frustrating you at 3 a.m., don't worry. You just call. Some of you do. And that's fine. We love emails. We can respond asynchronously. Uh, We can also cut and paste out of of some of the material that we have and and give you a very quick and, and precise answer better than we ourselves can try to explain on the phone. And there is an explanation However, let me just stop at this point and say it is possible that as you read your Bible you'll run into things that you don't understand. And brothers and sisters, that does not mean that God does not reign. That does not mean that His Word is not true. That does not mean That the author of the epistle to the Hebrews has made a mistake. And that it's not an inspired book. And that you need to have a crisis in your life about Jesus. It does not mean that at all. You know what it means? It means that God loves you enough that He's teaching you a lesson. Just like a little child needs to learn. That you don't know everything. And that that's still okay. I've told you before, we have taught our children as they grow up that God knows everything. Now, mom and dad know almost everything, but God knows everything, only God. And in your daily Bible reading, you can encounter passages that are a mystery to you. And at the very least, it's an occasion for you to humble your heart and worship Almighty God. He holds back some things from us. Oh, my friends, don't think for a moment. That the Bible reveals everything about everything. It does not. If the Father withheld from the Son in His human mind knowledge of the day and hour of His return, if that was in keeping with the humiliation of Jesus during the time of His earthly ministry, then I got news for you. You should expect a lot of things that you don't understand. And that's just okay. God reigns, not you or me. Even your pastors will have to tell you, I don't know, but I can't wait to find out. Won't it be great? You know, I've got a list. I've got a list of of Bible verses that I want to know what they mean and and I'm trying to decide in the new heavens and the new earth that the proper respectful protocol is to go to Isaiah and say, okay, buddy, what did you mean by this? Or do I have to kind of break into the inner circle and go talk to an apostle? Or, or do I try to make an appointment with Jesus? Or do I, do I go down a notch and just go to Calvin and ask him his opinion? What do I do? The point is, is that when you don't understand a verse, it's not a crisis of the Christian faith. It's an occasion on which you can learn to love the Lord even in the dark. Does not providence work that way in in your life? Do you understand the eternal meaning and implications of everything that happened to you? Even the kind of normal and ordinary things? I'll be frank with you. I don't understand them. How is it? That I am made in the image of God. And every morning I wake up and my hair looks like this. And there's stuffy stuff growing on my face. How is this? I don't know. And that's all right. You comb your hair. You shave your face. And you go about your day to the glory of God. And in the new heavens and new earth, when you get to Bible 101, you may be able to raise your hand and ask that question or else the Lord may look at you and say, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And the things revealed belong to you and to your children forever. And you can't know that. Or you can't know that yet. We trust Him. Even in the dark. Well, what's the riddle about Hebrews chapter 1? What do we do with this angels' text that used to be demons, as it were, or idols. Well, there's something interesting going on. You know, it may well be that that the psalmist is not even quoting, or that the uh, author of the Epistle to the Hebrews is not even quoting from the Psalms. He may not be quoting this particular passage. He may be making an allusion back to Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 43. And you can turn quickly in your Bible and look, and you won't find it there. And the reason you won't find it there is because they're following a very conservative and safe reading of the Hebrew Masoretic text. But you see, in the Septuagint, it's translated angels explicitly in Greek. And in the writings of Justin Martyr, in his dialogues, in, in section 130, it's interesting that he quotes from Greek texts and he uses the term angels, indicating there may have been an earlier primitive text among Christians that was so accepted. And in Qumran, in K4, they discovered a Hebrew fragment of this particular passage out of the Pentateuch. And it uses the language of sons of God, which is oftentimes glossed angels of God. And so there may be something very interesting going on with this text that we have reason not yet to understand. But the main point of the author of the epistle to the Hebrews is very clear. Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says that just as God was greater than the godlings and their little respective nests over which they supposedly brooded and controlled in their little idolatrous worlds, Just as God was greater than them, so too Jesus is greater even than the angels. As the common Septuagintal text states, Jesus is to be worshipped by the angels because He is superior to them because He is the very Son of God. So how should we then live? We should look to the Father who is sovereign over all the nations, who is sovereign over all the idols even. We should trust in Him. When you pick up your paper and there's bad news there, you click on your iPhone and you see this horrible stuff pouring out of the drudge report. Don't lose faith in God. What you see is not all that there is. If you are drawn to doubt the sovereignty of God over all the earth, then you need to clean your glasses. And you need to look to the Son, who is the incarnate Son of God, who reigns over all your eye can see on this side of the globe and on the other side as well. And you need to look to the Holy Spirit, who with the Father and the Son works all things out for God's glory and for His people's good. Amen.